Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Judd Kinsley, Associate Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and I'll be talking to him about his book, Natural Resources and the New Frontier, Constructing Modern China's Borderlands, which was published this year, 2018, by University of Chicago Press. Now, one question that continues to arise as awareness grows of the Chinese state's draconian policies in the Central Asian region of Xinjiang today is what it is doing there in the first place. What could Beijing's interest in this ecologically harsh and ethnically non-Han region be? And how has it managed to make its presence so forcefully felt so far from China's heartlands? Judd Kinsley's new book, Natural Resources in the New Frontier, goes a significant way to answering these and many other questions about the region and how it came to be a part of China. It does this by offering a fascinating new resource-centric perspective on state incorporation, retraining our eyes on the material and physical side to politics, and how state and non-state actors act through and are acted upon by objects. In Kinsley's account, Xinjiang's resources from oil to tungsten and grain to gold attain the totemic political role he shows they deserve, acting as, and this is a quote, a critical but largely overlooked factor in shaping the region's connections to China, regional neighbours and indeed the world. Wearing its considerable scholarship lightly and drawing on a host of Chinese, Soviet and British sources, Kinsley's book manages to account both for the contingent and plural nature of Xinjiang's experience of state incorporation for much of the 19th and 20th centuries, and for the immovability of the Chinese state's physically entrenched role today in the region. Successive layers of regional statehood have institutionalized the presence of various outside actors in Xinjiang over time, and these, Kinsley convincingly argues, also underlie much of the discord evident there today between Han Chinese immigrants and indigenous groups, including the Uyghurs and Kazakhs. But to talk more about such matters, uh, without further ado, I'll say, Judd Kinsley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Well, thank you very much for agreeing to appear. It's uh, it's a brilliant book, and uh, I'm looking forward a lot to talking about it. Um, But before we get to it, perhaps I could ask you something about your background and and, and how you became interested in this region, in its history, and uh, and anything else you consider relevant. Sure. Um, Well, I guess I should say that uh, my my background or my my connection to, to Xinjiang in particular is most specifically linked to an interest in, in border regions more generally. Um, and I first became exposed to, to Xinjiang as, as a, uh, on a study abroad trip to China, 1997, 1998, and near our university was a Xinjiang street or Xinjiang Jia. And I guess for me, as someone who was relatively ignorant about the situation in China, ethnic difference and, um, and the like, I found the distinctions between Xinjiang Jia, Xinjiang Street, and you know my perceptions of what I saw to be China as being um, you know, fascinating. And so I started thinking mm-hmm. much more carefully about Chinese border regions and their connection to the Chinese state, and that's what ultimately kind of put me down the path of um, thinking about uh, the connections between Xinjiang and the modern Chinese state. And mm-hmm. I think I, I followed up on this over the course of my uh, academic career. Um, I wrote a master's thesis where I was talking about some issues connected to uh, landscape development and irrigation. But ultimately, I mean, the real this work comes out of my um, 
PhD dissertation, which I, I did at UC San Diego in 2012. But it's, I think it's all of a stems from a larger interest in how border regions are connected to the state, whether it's in the Chinese context or in other uh, border regions. And something that I've tried to do in this, but I, I hope to kind of think more clearly about, or what I, what I hope this book does is it connects into a larger literature, but thinking about border regions and their connection to the state and thinking about in, in more, more complex ways. Hmm. Well, that's uh, that's really interesting, and I think uh, one real rich rich aspect and strength of the book is that you you look somewhat at uh, the border regions from from both sides to some extent, right? You're also drawing on uh, Soviet and, and Russian sources in particular, but also also some sources that relate to British interest in this region. Um, so you, you mentioned it grew out of your PhD dissertation. Um, in terms of the actual research practice, I guess uh, I'm curious to ask about that. Um, dealing with these multiple sources in multiple languages. Um, was it that a narrative picture emerged uh, as you were uh, doing this research or how were you able to balance tr- uh, researching in different locations in Russia, in China, um, and, and indeed in the UK with uh, the actual project narrative and, and, and the, the story that uh, emerged for you? Sure. Well, I, I think that the, the real, the, the trans, there, there are transnational elements, I think, in the larger story that I was telling in my PhD dissertation, unquestionably. I think it's really impossible to tell any uh, real story or believable story about Xinjiang without incorporating a certain amount of um, uh, tra- transnational interactions, whether it's Russian Empire or the Soviet Union or the British Empire or even, you know, um, Kanats, uh, Central Asian Kanats in Central Asia. Um, but those for me were relatively secondary in the, um, in the dissertation project, uh, and Mm. the, the transnational elements were something that I really highlighted much more clearly in the course of the revisions from the dissertation to a book manuscript. Um, Mm. so while I did do research in the, the British, the British archives, um, and various archives in China and in, in Taiwan, um, I didn't really do, uh, I wasn't able to do a very in-depth inquiry into the Russian and Soviet sources until after I had already completed the dissertation. And I think that sort of side of the project really emerged out of the, um, the out of the revisions that I made to the manuscript in the years after the PhD dissertation was completed. And, and ultimately, I think what it stemmed from was a feeling that the, the work was too narrow in many ways, I think that the PhD dissertation was, um, I mean, I think it's, it sounds negative the way I'm putting it, but I, I see it in many ways that it was a history of um, history of mining in Xinjiang, which I think is narrow and you're not going to really sell any books by, by <laughs> portraying it that way. Um, and so what I wanted to do was to try to, to shine a clear light on, on this, a broader scope of resource extraction enterprises, whether, or in particular, different forms of, uh, different forms of extraction and the extraction of different types of resources. And I think to do that, to do that in an accurate way, it was important to think about outside markets and, more, and a larger sort of variety of players who were quite active in Xinjiang's territory. And so that process of expanding outward um, and incorporating, making it more of a, a transnational work really came about after having completed the PhD dissertations. Oh, I see. I see. Well, that's that's a good kind of, um, I guess, lesson for anyone uh, looking to move on to that next project. And Absolutely. Um, I think you know, plenty of plenty of listeners will be at that stage, thinking of devising a new uh, a, a new project that that 
both is different from and builds on previous work. Um, and how about the work in, that you conducted in Xinjiang itself? Um, was that part? Of, was that something that occurred at your PhD dissertation level? And you, you, you use some of the archives there in Urumqi. Sure. I just wonder what your experience of access there was and uh, how how that evolved over time, and whether you have any impressions of what it's like today. I mean, that, that's right. a side of, of the story. Of course, it's a less important side in the grander picture of what's going on in Xinjiang now, but. Um, could you say something about yeah how, how, how it was to do archival work actually in the region? Sure. I mean, from the research perspective, um, I did I did uh, I did over a month of research in the Xinjiang provincial or in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region archives in 2010, um, and it was uh, not a particularly pleasant uh, experience. And I think a lot of that has to do with the the political restrictions on doing research in Xinjiang more generally, not surprisingly. Um, so I was able to get some level of access to the uh, autonomous region archives through the, through the institution that was, that I was affiliated with in China, which was the um, Chinese Academy of social, uh, of social sciences, the Institute for border history and geography. And the head of that Institute in 2010, Li Sheng, uh, had strong connections into Xinjiang, was able to introduce me to people in that autonomous region archive, and as a result, was able to get some level of access there. For what I was led to believe, foreign scholars had done some research there, potentially in a very limited kind of way, but I was the first, along with uh, a colleague of mine, the first to be able to get extensive access to uh, archives from uh, for archival materials from the Republican period. Um, hmm. Which which was very helpful, and I'm happy to have gotten that material. But I think the obstacle to doing research in Xinjiang at that time were were already pretty significant. And the main the the main problem that I faced, the main kind of day to day problem that I faced, was I, I was never able to get any. Um, I was never able to take a look at the index or the table of contents or what materials were actually available in. <laughs> the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region Archive. And for anyone who's done archival research, uh, you can understand that that uh, doesn't make for <laughs> a frustrating archival process. And so essentially what I did was I went, and this is what they, they suggested I do, is I, I went into the archive, worked pretty closely with the archivist, told them about my project, and they pulled volumes that they thought would be potentially relevant to the project. Um, that's a little frustrating as it's hard to get a certain amount of the context. Many of the pieces that I was able to get out of that archive, you know, it's, it's hard to, to place them either bureaucratically or historically. And so that makes the whole process quite, quite difficult. Um, and, and frankly, a little, um, a little disconcerting. And the other thing was, again, from a day-to-day perspective, um, real difficulties in uh, taking notes, what types of material you can bring into the archive. All that stuff was pretty heavily restricted. I was given a pencil and paper and was asked to take notes on that. And those were checked every day uh, by the archivist. Um, So I think the process was pretty frustrating and, but it was, you know, it's a, I think doing archival research in general can be rewarding. And this was rewarding in certain kinds of ways, just knowing that I was, accessing information that uh, other that many Western scholars hadn't been able to access, but that process mm-hmm. itself um, still left one feeling a bit, a bit of an untethered, I suppose. And then to, mm-hmm. to, to take your uh, question further, um, you had asked what happened later. Um, 
I tried to go back to the Xinjiang archives um, after I already started at University of Wisconsin. Um, so I believe I was there in 2013, summer of 2013. And I was told that uh, the archive was essentially closed um, to researchers of, of any stripe, foreign or not. Mm. Um, and that was because materials were being, were being pro- processed, which anyone who's done research <laughs> in, in Chinese archives uh, knows that it's sort of a, an ominous <laughs> an um, ominous label on a on a long term potentially unending process. So right, uh, right, with yeah. the, I don't I haven't tried to get back in in recent years. Um, I haven't really had a lot of contact with the archivists who I who I knew pretty well at that at that time, and so I'm not really entirely sure about what the current state of that particular archive is. Right, right. Well, given the uh, the strictures that you were under, yeah, I mean, it must have been excellent to, to get your hands on what you could. And, and I think, uh, if, if given that you were flying blind, if it, as it were, with what was actually in there, then it's all the more uh, uh, remarkable that, that you've pulled out such a such a wealth of interesting details. Um, so perhaps we'll we'll jump into. Uh, some of those details and the actual uh, the content of the book itself. Um, you have a basically uh, an introduction, uh, resources, competition, and layers of the states where you uh, set up the book and outline the kind of principal principal themes. Um, you start uh, by describing how after the Qing conquest of Xinjiang um, uh, during the during the years of the, the last dynasty of China, the region was was seen as a as a wasteland to start with, um, but uh, it sort of progressively became more and more important uh, to stop it being a wasteland, uh, or at least to uh, to kind of re-appraise uh, what kind of a part of China this was. Um, could you begin by giving us a, a, a broader picture of why it is that resources have been such a, a key a key part of Xinjiang's story since that sort of wasteland era, if you like, um, uh, it's two hundred plus years ago, um, and, and uh, yeah. And, what the what the role of resources is in this in this picture? Uh, sure, I mean what I what I really try to do in the book is to <clears throat> to address sort of the question of resources uh, pretty broadly, and so uh, what I start with is to kind of think about the, the ways in which the Chinese state, or I should say, the Qing Empire, was viewing um, the landscape and its potential. Its uh, potential for production um, in the 19th century, which is when primarily when I start, although I, I do sort of point back toward the, the 18th century, the period immediately after the conquest of Xinjiang. But ultimately, I mean, I think uh, the the question of what a productive landscape looks like was really critical as far as um, Qing officials were concerned. And so the, the, the breakoff point that I identify is thinking about a very narrow sort of vision of a productive landscape, which is centered around its ability to produce grain that then can be used to support soldiers or to support the state in terms of taxes and and therefore be able to support a larger governmental structure toward a more expanded sort of vision of what, um, how a resource can support the state. And so moving from grain towards thinking about other forms, uh, other types of resources, whether it's gold or whether it's furs, pelts, livestock, or industrial minerals. And so what I found is that the way that the state is, the way the Qing Empire and the the Republic of China and the People's Republic, their effort to gain access to certain types of resources had a critical role in sort of shaping the nature of the state activity in the region. Um, And so their desire to gain access to um, uh, the desire to, to reclaim territory, to be able to 
make it produce grain uh, was created a certain type of, uh, of governance in Xinjiang. Um, the failure of that larger effort to produce grain prompted it to think more broadly about what kinds of resources the state can and should be producing there and ultimately mm-hmm. begin thinking much more broadly about that, thinking about gold and other, and other types of resources. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll stop with that. Yeah, yeah, sure. And and so um, you, I guess we, we've already touched on the fact that you conducted research in, in multiple locations and, and really uh, Russia and, 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 and Russian Empire, Soviet Union, and then uh, even you know, perhaps to some extent Russia today, but maybe a bit less so, are all, all play a role um, over time. And uh, it's a fascinating uh, kind of story of encounter between Russia and China that I think emerges here because both uh, China and Russia are uh, are in contact mediated via Central Asian colonies in, in both cases with Russia from the from the Kazakh and, and Kyrgyz and Tajik side and China mm-hmm. in Xinjiang itself. Um, and this really is one of the most compelling aspects, at least to me personally. So could you say something about the, the, the role of foreign actors, Russia in particular, uh, and, and how they feed into this picture of, of resource extraction? Sure. Uh- I mean, I think really at the center of this, particularly by the 19th century, is the emergence of various um, imperial powers. Um, you know, if we think about the so-called great game um, with various uh, imperial powers sort of battling for control over Central Asia, you have the Russian Empire and the uh, British Empire, the, the British Empire and the other side, you have the Qing Empire, all sort of battling for some level of control in Central Asia. I think that's the larger larger sort of context. Um, and so within this, there, there is an effort by various uh, imperial powers in the region to be able to assert some level of not only territorial control, but control over various resources produced in the region. Um, and so this is a, 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 what, what I try to argue in the book is that this changes over time. Um, but one of the really important things as far as Xinjiang is concerned is that one of the driving forces for prompting the state to think more broadly about the types of resources that were being promoted by the state was the, um, the presence of various foreign powers. And so really the jump off point of my own narrative, um, really the critical uh, inflection point is when you have uh, agents of the Russian Empire who are actively surveying territory in Xinjiang uh, and identifying areas that were producing specific types of resources, in, in this case, in uh, producing gold. Um, and the, the presence of Russian actors and their desire to gain access to certain types of resources prompts an effort by local Qing officials um, and also by officials in Beijing to begin uh, their own efforts to gain access to these resources out of a fear that if they don't do something in these areas, then these imperial powers will be able to stake their own claims. And ultimately, those claims might lead to territorial claims and the loss of, ter- uh, of, loss of sovereign territory. Um, and I think that a major sort of one of the major themes that comes out of the, the case of Xinjiang, but, but is something that that holds for um, other border regions in the late Qing period and the Republic of China is a real weakness by uh, the Qing Empire and the China and a series of Chinese states in Xinjiang. Um, and ultimately, this weakness and by weakness, I mean, uh, an inability to assert their political control or an unwillingness to invest resources in the construction of new um, of capital and the, uh, the construction of new infrastructural projects. All of this creates a 
relative kind of political vacuum into which imperial powers assert themselves. Um, and so you have, you know, by the 1910s and 1920s, the British Empire, which is quite active in the South, and the Russian, uh, the Russian Empire, and later the Soviet Union that's active in northern Xinjiang, they're all taking advantage of the Qing Empire and the Republic of China's unwillingness or inability to assert their own control over Xinjiang. Um, mm. So I think what you there's a there's kind of a push and a pull between uh, efforts by these imperial powers to assert control over resources and then an effort by uh, a series of Chinese states to then either uh, stake their own claim or else build atop the efforts that were put in place by these imperial powers. And so what I find in the work is that it's really impossible to be able to fully pull apart the efforts of different imperial powers um, and the uh, the Chinese Republic, because uh, essentially they're all part of one larger story in which they're all trying to simultaneously gain some level of access to these types of resources. They're building on each other's work. So they are in competition, but in many ways, they're also in collaboration to gain access to these resources. And that's uh, a really critical sort of element in creating a extraction and transportation and ultimately governmental control infrastructure in the region, this kind of process of collaboration among different um, regional players. Mm-hmm. Now, well, perhaps could you just flesh out a bit more that what, what that infrastructure of, of, of governance and of extraction and so on is? I mean, what, what I guess to make this link transparent between the, the, the physical items or the, the goods themselves buried in the ground or wherever they are and the actual political power that is, is, is ultimately invested in, uh, in that territory, what, yeah, what is this broader uh, sort of infrastructure in, 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 in concrete terms? Well, in, in concrete terms, I mean, I think it... It, it, it can be any number of things, but I think it, there's a series of different types of actions, I think, that help create the, the initial layers. And the first one is geological um, expeditions into very highly delimited regions. Um, so for the most part, while there were Chinese geologists um, who were operating in Xinjiang, many of the geologists who were the most active, particularly in the most uh, the most important resource sites in Xinjiang today were Russian and later Soviet geologists. Their efforts uh, and their, the, the, um, the writing of these reports identify very specific resource sites. Um, and through sort of the global circulation of knowledge um, are the sites that are also identified by other geologists from different countries and also from the Chinese Republic and the People's Republic. So I think that's one layer that, that begins sort of the process of identifying and making choices about where the state is going to devote its resources. It's through this process of geological expeditions and ge- geological exploration. Um, but ultimately, I think what and what I'm interested in is sort of the material power of these resources and what really drives that process of of layers is the specific uh, capital investments in very specific regions. And so I think what what's important for me is that it's um, it's quite expensive to construct various uh, to develop. Just for example, large-scale oil extraction, oil refining um, equipment to to establish those things at a place that's so far away from transportation networks, um, a place where labor uh, labor and cost of materials might be high, and so as a result, the uh, the infrastructure and the machinery that's set up at a given place then has a certain material presence, and so when other regimes are coming in and looking to make choices about where they should be 
establishing their own facilities. They often look to those that are already established in order to hold down costs and to begin producing um, resources rather quickly. Uh, mm. Supplementing these are the construction of road networks that bind these sites to, to markets and to border crossings. The establishment of these then, again, is a large-scale capital infusion into the region um, that subsequent regimes look to and look to build upon. Rather than having to construct a fully new uh, transportation regime, they tend to build upon the infrastructure that's already in place. So if we think about sort of concrete elements, concrete layers, um, I see them as being geological reports, which are maybe slightly less concrete, but also uh, extraction equipment, refining equipment, transportation infrastructure. And then I think the other element that comes on top of that is an effort by various institutions or by political institutions to be able to assert their control over these regions. And so once the state has made its priority in investing in specific regions at the expense of other ones, there tends to be a, there's, or there's a need to begin mobilizing labor, uh, to begin establishing political institutions to assert a state monopoly over those, reg- over those regions. So built, a, built upon those um, extraction and transportation infrastructure is a new political infrastructure that's intended to mobilize and discipline labor um, and also to assert state control over those regions. So you tend to have political offices, party offices, and military installations and police functions that are all connected. So these are the layers that are built upon a uh, resource sites that are identified by the state, but they, but they have long roots that are not necessarily connected only to the Chinese state alone. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's fascinating, and, and yeah, this layering, the way that you chart the 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 the, the way, as you say, that uh, subsequent regimes follow previous actors in the region to to kind of hook on to uh, projects that are already there. I guess we might see comparisons there with how things unfolded in the wake of uh, Japanese occupation of Northeast China and the way that the industrial infrastructure there was modernized with Soviet help, and then ultimately became part of a, a Chinese. Um, China PRC era kind of industrial base. Um, so I think it's a, it's a really fascinating way of looking at looking at the region. Um, I just wonder, in light of that kind of layering and the role that you stress of Russian actors uh, and non non Chinese actors, why was it that their uh, quite extensive surveying and other sort of material activities di- didn't lead to uh, incorporation of this region into, say, the Russian Empire or, or the Soviet Union. Uh, do, did, was that something that kind of uh, worked in, into your uh, analysis uh, over the course of, of your work? It does, and you know that's a that's a great a great question. And what I think the the term that tends to that tends to be associated with this type of dynamic is one of informal empire uh, rather than formal empire, which is the um, the outright. Uh, acquisition and incorporation of territory into an expanding empire. Informal empire is one in which the state makes a choice or uh, the imperial metropole makes a choice to not necessarily incorporate territory, but rather to be able to extract the profits from that territory without shouldering the burden of annexation. Um, And this is something it seems that uh, Soviet officials in particular made a number of explicit choices about, um, about not sort of taking on the burden of um, governing Xinjiang, but rather taking advantage of a series of highly beneficial agreements that they signed with uh, a series of largely autonomous so-called provincial governments in Xinjiang to be able to reap the profits, get the benefits of various industrial minerals that they needed to meet uh, large-scale industrial uh, industrial planning goals. Um, 
without having to expend the resources in setting up a state infrastructure in the region. So they're able to already do the things that they're hoping to do in terms of creating Xinjiang as a resource periphery without necessarily having to expend the resources to be able to do that. And there's a number of cases in which um, provincial officials, possibly looking to, to butter up Stalin or other Soviet officials, um, suggest that, you know, well, maybe we, Xinjiang should be part of the part of the, the Soviet Union, should be a Soviet socialist republic. But on at least two occasions, Stalin rejects this um, and says, no, that's not what we're interested in. Xinjiang is very clearly a province of China, um, and that's the way it's going to remain. So we're going to have these agreements in place without necessarily incorporating it, Xinjiang into a larger Soviet social republic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Well, I I, I think that's uh, the, the way that you yeah chart that story is uh, is 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 excellent. And and I, I should say too, I was going to mention when mentioning the the layering and and so on that you have uh, throughout these fantastic maps that uh, really kind of uh, represent in, in very uh, engage very engaging way the the, the way that layers and uh, subsequent pro- projects follow projects in some of the same locations, many of which are clustered around. Uh, Russian and, and Soviet borders. Um, I guess finally, before we jump into the actual kind of main chapters of the book, the other thing that seems key here is uh, the continuance. You mentioned earlier that the British were active in the south, the Russians were more active in the north of Xinjiang. Um, and there is this kind of north-south divide that persists in, a, in an interesting way, given that Xinjiang itself was, I guess, kind of cobbled together from, from mm. a northern uh, Jungaria, this region, and then a southern, more Turkic uh, region uh, in the first place. Could you just say something about the significance of, of the sort of north-south divide in this picture within Xinjiang? Sure. I mean, I think you point to a, an important sort of historical context that divides north from south. I mean, just from the geographic perspective, the uh, area north of the Tian Shan mountain range um, tends to be defined by um, the uh, uh, Zungarian Basin, while the south is a more, uh, which is tends to be a stepland, gra- large-scale grassland that connects up into the larger Eurasian gla- grasslands. While the south, south of the Tian Shan mountain range is the Turim Basin, which is far more arid and is populated largely by a series of oasis towns scattered around the edges of, uh, of the Taklamakan Desert. So there's already a sort of a cobbled together nature of Xinjiang between north uh, and south. So north more more nomadic and the south more sedentary and agricultural. Um, but what I'm focusing on, what I focus on primarily, or one, one of the important themes of my book is thinking about how the strong Soviet presence in the 1940s into the 1950s helps reinforce this north-south dichotomy. And ultimately the the emphasis of Soviet planners and geologists on a series of sites in northern Xinjiang and really a willful uh, or a willingness to overlook the the productive potential of similar oil and other types of resource sites in the south helps steer significant amounts of Soviet state capital to northern Xinjiang um, at the expense of the south. And ultimately, this helps create a north-south divide that, you know, if we think about this process of layering in which you have the Soviets who are investing substantial amounts in a series of delimited uh, resource sites in northern Xinjiang, when 
subsequent regimes, in particular the People's Republic, are looking for opportunities to be able to quickly reap the resource wealth of Xinjiang, they again build on these sites in northern Xinjiang. And there's a series of reports that I've found in which they are essentially saying, well, we need to turn away from the south because there's not enough transportation infrastructure. If we find oil, we can't necessarily profit off of it um, immediately. So we need to concentrate on these sites in northern Xinjiang. And that helps create real capital or differences in terms of capital investments between North and South that really persist into uh, into the 1990s, um, in a, in a, uh, broadly speaking. There's sort of uh, waxing and waning of this. And there are efforts to gain some understanding about resource sites in Southern Xinjiang. But for the most part, um, that North-South dichotomy continues to exist. And Northern Xinjiang today is a site of much of the Han ongoing Han migration into the province. The largest Han populations are in the north, while the largest Uyghur populations are in the south. Um, And the Mm -hmm. fact that there remains this sort of capital investment differences between north versus south has now been grafted onto some of the um, ethnic, uh, some of the ethnic distinctions between north and south as well, creating, um, you know, a combustible situation in which you have largely uh, or more or poorer counties in the in the Uyghur dominated South and wealthier Han counties in the North. And this has created, um, you know, re- real tensions within the province, within the region. Mm-hmm. Well, we've, yeah, I, I think uh, that, that uh, argument really uh, brings, brings the whole thing to uh, really uh, excellent relief. The, 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 sort of structure of the book and the way that it moves forward chronologically um, and, and come bringing right us, us right up to the present day and some very contemporary issues, obviously. Um, we've covered a lot of ground already, actually, but in, in terms of some of the key themes, but I thought we might just dive into some of the specifics um, as, the, as the chapters proceed following sure. your introduction. Um, the book as a whole is divided into two parts, the first entitled Lucrative Products and the Pursuit of Profit, uh, which brings us up uh, sort of chronologically, although not entirely, but, but largely chronologically uh, to the uh, uh, onset of the, of the Soviet period and once the Soviets have started to become actors uh, in, in distinction from the Russians, if you like. And then part two focuses on industrial minerals and the transformation of Xinjiang. Uh, and that, that takes us from that period all the way up to, to the present. Um, so you start with kind of uh, capturing what we've already mentioned, the failure of some of these Qing agricultural land reclamation projects the latter days of the dynasty and the early days of uh, the republic, and some of that early Russian interest in surveying and uh, uh, and coming in and, and essentially causing Chinese actors to rethink their idea of how to make this productive territory. There are some less uh, sort of expected items that feature in this picture as, as time moves forward. Chapter four, in fact, focuses on furs, pelts, wool, and the power of global markets. That's the, the title of the chapter. Um, could you say something about the, the, these, this sort of interesting counterpoint this furry counterpoint to the heavier you know the, the the sort of more archetypal gold oil these 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 natural resources that uh, i guess we've already discussed a little bit sure i mean i i think it's really hard if we wanted to take a broad sort of perspective on resource extraction in a place like xinjiang and especially if you're focused as i am um heavily on northern xinjiang it, i think it's really impossible to overlook the the importance of um, pastoral products like furs, pelts, wool, you know, felt, or, or these various camel hair. Uh, these are really critical products in in the region. And I think what I found really fascinating about them is, especially after I spent a little bit more time um, in 
uh, archives uh, in in Moscow in the Russian Federation, I found that there was uh, a much clearer connection than I realized between the um, the desire by various foreign agents to um, gain access to these pastoral products and sort of the pull factor of global markets for various types of pastoral products. And so I was trying to sort of understand the circulation of pastoral, pastoral products in that in a way that connects Xinjiang to some of these global markets and, and perhaps to, you know, thinking about the emergence of um, and the, the distribution of furs more globally in the 1910s and the 1920s. And I think what I came to to find is that these furs um, play a real, or or the the desire to gain access to these furs and to stake control of these furs, particularly by uh, the uh, largely autonomous, despite his connections to the Soviet Union, Chiang um, Tai regime, he attempts to assert much more direct c- control over these furs in, in order to be able to quickly pay down large Soviet uh, loans that he. Um, that he took. And so what, what I find is that this effort to profit off of uh, the global markets for various pastoral products leads him to um, much more aggressively try and assert control over um, uh, nomadic pastoral groups in northern Xinjiang and to assert much more direct control over production and the movement of those groups. And so, so ultimately, I think what I'm trying to do in that chapter is to think about the ways in which the state is asserting control over pastoral markets and how those pastoral markets and their connection to global markets are uh, impacting uh, the lives and the governance of nomadic groups in northern Xinjiang. That, that's kind of the idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned Shang Shatai there, and, and uh, he and various other uh, local authorities uh, over time in, in Xinjiang seem to have a lot more connections to Soviet Union and, or to, to Russia or to outside actors than they do to, to China itself. I mean, is it the case that uh, he in particular was uh, talking more to the Soviets than he was to, to Beijing or, or, well, indeed, any of the other capital cities that, that sure. you had during this period? Uh, definitely, that's definitely the case. Um, despite the fact that he ends up, you know, dying in relative obscurity in in Taiwan, uh, I believe in 1950s, 19 or somewhere in the 1950s and 1960s, um, he had relatively weak kind of political connections um, to China-based regimes, um, and I think at least partially that's a, a function of the. It's a very sort of real. Uh, politique sort of um, analysis of the situation in Xinjiang and its really intensive um, economic connections to the Soviet Union um, in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen thirties, and so I think the realization that, particularly given Chiang Kai Shek's other uh, issues that he was facing in central and eastern China, with you know industrializing the China coast or uh, you know, asserting his control over warlords or the Chinese Communist Party that, you know, support from the regime in, in China was not particularly forthcoming. So if he needs to gain access to capital or if he needs to gain access to to cash, which was in short supply in a place like Xinjiang, or if he needs to be able to get various commodity goods into Xinjiang markets, he has to have a very close and working relationship with the Soviet Union. Um he tries to break that connection in 1942 and really pays a pretty significant price for it. 
um, mm -hmm. as the Soviet Union essentially cuts off all trade, uh, which creates a certain amount of uh, dissatisfaction among large numbers of groups in Xinjiang. Right, right. Well, then, yeah, perhaps we can, can sort of move forward into that into that period. Um, I mean, the, the the fact that, as you mentioned, that furs were playing such a role there in in affairs with the with the Soviet Union uh, during that Republican era, it, it again really gestures to this place of Xinjiang within a broader kind of historical Russian imperial uh, mm. context, if you like, because of I suppose such goods were so important going back centuries in, in the expansion of Russian inf influence across Eurasia. So I think that's a very sure. uh, fascinating dimension of that. Um, but yeah, moving forward, as you say, uh, into this period after 1942, this takes us into the second part of the book, um, where we're dealing once again with more of these heavy, uh, yeah, weighty sort of uh, resources uh, when compared to the, 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 the um, pelts and furs and so on. Um, you, we uh, come into a period when the Soviet Union and, and the, once the People's Republic of China is established, they, of course, are, are actively collaborating, perhaps in a more open and direct way than, the, than was the case when Chiang Shui-tai and others were dealing with the, with the Soviets, but hardly talking to the Chinese government. Um, how was it that uh, this sort of altered the picture of, of resource extraction and, and the kinds of resources that were being um mind and, and sought uh, once China and, and Chinese and Soviet authorities were collaborating in Xinjiang? Sure. Well, I, I guess just to provide a little bit of context, I think one the reason I, I, I broke it up into those larger sections is I, I think that there's, a, a, there's an effort by planners to sort of understand what or whether they're in the Soviet Union or whether they're in China to understand the kind of role that Xinjiang can play. What can they produce to be able to support the state? There's an effort, you know, early on to sort of make it produce grain for the good of the state, you know, other potential tax revenues like gold. But ultimately, by the 1930s, the, the discovery of large scale, um, a large scale oil field in northern Xinjiang, um, the production of various natural resources sort of suggests maybe that that Xinjiang can play this really critical role in producing important industrial uh, industrial minerals. Um, and so I think it's that sort of realization and the circulation, uh, this, not just the circulation of Soviet geologists, but also the, the presence of large-scale extraction enterprises suggests to Chinese official the potential role that Xinjiang can provide to the, um, to the relatively weak Chinese state in the 1940s. So at, in the 1940s, and it's a very long and complex story about why Xiang Chitsai rejects the Soviet Union and ultimately throws his lot in with, uh, with the Republic of China. Uh, but the desire by Chinese officials then is to be able to, to reap Xinjiang's resource wealth rather quickly. Um, what they would like to be able to do, they not should be relatively clear. I mean, the uh, Republic of China is uh, fighting Japan. Uh, they're relatively cut off from global transport markets at, uh, by the spring of 1942 with the Japanese invasion of Burma. So there's a hope that Xinjiang then can provide certain types of resources, petroleum, in order to be able to fuel um, cars and airplanes in uh, for the Chinese war effort, but also to be able to produce other types of resources that can be used to uh, used as collateral for American loans in the war effort. So this desire to be able to essentially do what the Soviet Union had been doing before in Xinjiang, to be able to reap that resource wealth for their own for their own profit. Um, 
But the problem was that they don't have the resources to really be able to do that. Um, and so as a result, they come into Xinjiang and they send geological teams widely across Xinjiang, but there's a realization that they don't quite have the means to be able to access it. They're not going to be able to construct a large-scale transport infrastructure that would be capable of smoothly shipping those resources back towards so-called you know, free China or unoccupied China. As a result, they have little choice but to sort of build upon the efforts by the Soviet Union. And there's efforts in 1940 and 1943 to establish new negotiations with the Soviet Union to essentially have a collaborative process in which China and the Soviet Union would be jointly extracting uh, petroleum wealth or jointly extracting other forms of resources in Xinjiang. And I, and I think that's just a product of Chinese weakness at the time. They're unable to, to be able to invest the types of resources they need to to be able to profit. And as a result, they turn to the Soviet Union for some kind of collaborative venture. It fails because they're really unwilling to make many concessions to the Soviet Union out of a, out of a mistrust. Um, but that's the reason or the rationale behind Chinese efforts to collaborate with the Soviet Union. And that's something that continues throughout the 1940s. There's various efforts to negotiate with the Soviet Union to set up collaborative or cooperative enterprises. And that's something that continues into the People's Republic. Um, when, you know, as many people know, these Soviet technicians are coming in. Um, there's a series of agreements that are signed with the Soviet Union to be able to work together to extract Xinjiang's uh, resources for the good of the Soviet Union and for China. But that, that process stretches back into the 1940s in the Republic of China. Mm, yeah, and I think that's a fascinating continuity, uh, the, the kind of continuities that you chart going all the way back to, indeed, the, the Qing and uh, the Qing imperial and Russian imperial era uh, is, is uh, a really refreshing uh, look at this uh, this region and, and indeed this kind of long durée period. It's easy to assume that, oh, well, the Republic of China, of course, you know, America was sort of more involved than, than the Soviet Union was. It's kind of dawn of dawn of a Cold War era. And and, uh, and, and actually, as you, say, as you say, there were collaborations that, that sort of, or at least, uh, well, as you put it, layers of involvement uh, that, that persisted, yeah, as from from Republican era into the into the PRC period. Um, so, um, of course, the friendship and, and the collaboration, of the experts didn't last all that long. Uh, the kind of friend, uh, chummy uh, interaction there between PRC and and Soviet authorities and, and uh, industrial specialists and so on. Uh, it, it saw its demise along with all kinds of other things in the sixties. Um, but how did uh, then the, the PRC balanced the fact that it continued to sort of ape Soviet practices and, and really lodge itself in places that had been established as resource centers during Russian Soviet uh, eras um, with the uh, need to repudiate the Soviet Union, the kind of need to say, well, we are exceeding their, uh, their, their example or we are uh, independent and growing on, on our own. Hmm. Well, they... I mean, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, I don't think they ever. I mean, they repudiate in other contexts, but in the Xinjiang context, they don't entirely repudiate it. Um, and I think throughout the 1950s, there's really a concerted effort to build upon these sites that were identified and highlighted by Soviet officials. You do have sort of an expansion and a new sort of confidence that they can identify new resource sites beyond that very limited map that was established by the Soviet Union. Um, and particularly during the Great Leap Forward, when you have new types of production goals and new drilling goals, that all this discussion about shooting up a satellite or being able to drill massive um, meters worth uh, of, of oil wells or resource wells, 
there is a sort of effort to expand that resource map outward. Um, and you do see the identification of new types of resources, but or of new resource sites. But I think what's really interesting about is that still, despite the fact that they are kind of flooding throughout the flooding throughout Xinjiang into southern Xinjiang and various regions that were largely underexplored, there still is an effort to focus very clearly and to use the sites of existing production or existing um, petroleum processing as a hub for their own extraction efforts. And so you see the uh, drilling sites that are going around these Soviet sites that were uh, uh, Soviet sites that had stretching back to the 1930s and the 1940s. And so they're using the Soviet map as uh, waypoints for their own larger process of trying to extract more and more uh, resources from the region. That's a relatively limited window um, that doesn't progress much past the Great Leap Forward period in 1961 or 1962. And in the period after that, you see the diminishment of Xinjiang as a potential resource production site. They do end up building a railroad to Xinjiang finally in 1962. Um, and there is production from um, uh, of various types of resources, in particular petroleum for domestic markets. But ultimately, the focus of Xinjiang as being this really critical resource production site um, just really isn't there uh, until China's domestic oil demand begins to increase in the 1990s and there's a need to be able to produce more domestic petroleum. Um, but for much of the period from the 1960s, the 1970s, and the 1980s, um, there's, it's not a substantial increase in, Soviet, uh, in Chinese investment in Xinjiang. And as a result, they tend to conform to the larger map that had been uh, established and laid out by Soviet geologists and Soviet planners in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Right, right. And that speaks, I suppose, of a continuation of this ebb and flow of, of interest from the center in, in Xinjiang, which, uh, as you note uh, and, and argue, can so clearly be read through engagement with, with the natural resources of the region. Um, bringing us up kind of more to the present, um, uh, actually, I would point listeners in the direction of a previous uh, interview with Tom Cliff about his book, Oil and Water, which also looks at some of this uh, involvement in the, yep. the, the 60s and then a lull and then re-involvement, if you like, or new uh, inflows in the 90s or uh, from the 90s onwards. Um, could you bring us up to the present in terms of how after this renewal of, of interest in uh, China's domestic oil economy, uh, petroleum economy, uh, once that was uh, reinvigorated, how has that changed the picture uh, in Xinjiang? Sure, and I'll, I'll caution to say that I'm, I'm not a political scientist or a sociologist as, as Tom Cliff is, and so I would kind of defer to some of his analysis, analyses as well. But, in, but structurally, I think what's, what I see um, and what fits into the larger kind of historical phenomena, I think, is that um, as China has gotten wealthier in the period since the uh, reform and opening 1978, there are, and this is not a story that's unique to Xinjiang, but there is the emergence of, of socioeconomic inequalities across the region uh, or across China more generally. Um, that's also true in Xinjiang, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, it, it, but those socioeconomic um, differences have tended to track pretty closely onto those areas that were highlighted for um, resource production stretching back into the 1930s. And so many of those counties in Xinjiang, many, many of which are in northern Xinjiang, um, are ones that have, uh, are tend to be the wealthiest counties in Xinjiang. And so I think 
this is a relatively new phenomenon. I think as sort of the uh, some of the, the governmental restrictions on the distribution of, of capital have eased in years since reform and opening, there has been a willingness to allow for certain kinds of inequalities. And those inequalities have skyrocketed in a place like Xinjiang, in a place like um, Karame in northern Xinjiang, in which you have per capita GDP that is not that dissimilar from per capita GDP at very wealthy places along the China coast. At the same time, you have some of the poorest prefectures and counties in southern Xinjiang as well. So you have this growing wealth discrepancy, I think, um, that really tracks very closely onto some of the decisions that are made by uh, that are made by uh, Soviet uh, Soviet planners and by Chinese Communist Party officials from the 1930s uh, into the 1960s, and so I think that's part of a larger um, part of uh, some of the structural one of the sort of structural factors I think that's often overlooked when we are trying to assess what's happening in Xinjiang today. Um, and if we're thinking about sort of the 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 roots of what many indigenous Turkic Muslims are frustrated with, I think at least. It's, there are a series of kind of uh, issues of uh, state assimilation campaigns. Um, there are problem, major problems with kind of coercion. Um, state oppression, I think, is certainly the case. But I also think there's a, an important factor in this is the emerging inequalities and a feeling that those inequalities are much more clearly grafted on um, ethnic difference between Uyghurs and Han. That's something that Tom Cliff, I think, lays out very clearly. But what I'm trying to do is to think about how that structurally grafts onto a map of Xinjiang with roots that stretch into the 19th and the early 20th century. Mm. And it's, well, it's a very persuasive uh, way of looking at it, because clearly, as you point out, the, the, the physical infrastructure, the material artifacts of this state presence there, it's hard, it's immanent you know it's 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 there in your face and and it can't be shifted and i think when it comes to uh, the understanding how completely um impossible and hopeless the situation for many indigenous people uh, is there it's a it's 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 a pretty uh, telling indication of of that situation i think that to and to focus on these elements of it um but in any case yeah that really brings us right up to uh, to the uh, closing of the book and and uh, speaks of what you put uh, as your title for your final chapter the enduring power of layers uh, and i think uh, i think that's uh, yeah a very compelling way of, of examining this region um but in any case judd uh, we've taken up a fair bit of your time uh, today so uh, before we go perhaps i can just ask you our uh, traditional question uh, namely what is it you're up to now and how has uh, this built into some new project or a completely different project that has nothing to do with it well, I, I suppose maybe thanks for for asking about it. It's I suppose it might sound like a completely different project, but I do see some similarities. I'll try to lay them out really briefly. But right now, I'm working on a new project on um, American and Allied foreign aid to China in World War II um, and in the uh, post-war Chinese Civil War. And what I want to be able to do is to sort of think about, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the United States about the fact that you know. Uh, the U.S. government gave X billion dollars worth of lead lease aid to China. It was largely squandered. Well, I, I want to think more about what kind of aid was actually going into China. Where was it going and what kind of impact does it have on the local level? So I think 
the connection that I see with this first book is thinking about and taking seriously the material objects themselves, the power of gold or the power of petroleum in shaping larger state institutions around it. Well, I think something similar is happening in terms of the um, specific kinds of items that are being shipped into China during the wartime period, and actually that China was shipping back to the United States. I think those things are reconfiguring the world around them in powerful kinds of ways and in ways that we don't understand. And when we think about these things in the abstract, in terms of dollars or total tonnage or whatever, we don't really understand how these objects themselves have power and how they continue to have resonance and shape um, society and you know trade relations and Sino-American relations in powerful ways. Mm. Brilliant. Well, that sounds, uh, yeah, like a really excellent uh, new kind of dimension or, uh, yeah, cognate, I guess, project looking into material objects as you did uh, for this book. Uh, But in any case, uh, thanks very much again uh, for appearing on the show. Uh, It was excellent talking to you. uh, And uh, yeah, hope to do so again. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And listeners, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, Go out and uh, buy this book. There was a tremendous amount that we were not able to cover given the limits of uh, of podcasting time. Uh, But uh, thank you as ever for listening on this occasion to New Books in East Asian Studies, which is a podcast on the New Books Network. Speak to you next time. Mm -hmm.